Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. Before we get into today's interview with our celebrated guest, Kirtan artist Krishna Das, I just wanted to mention the course that he's hosting with us, which begins next week, September 29th. That's a Wednesday, and it begins at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And this course, which we've called The Path of the Heart, is a four-module experience with Krishnadas that explores chanting, stories, and discussion. So, of course, Krishnadas is best known for his kirtan music and so you'll get an opportunity to chant with him which is of course a wonderful opportunity for all of us and then you'll get an opportunity to um, uh, share in some of his stories and also have a discussion and Q&A with him as well. So if you'd like to register for this course just head to embodiedphilosophy.com click on courses in the navigation and then if you scroll down slightly you'll see the link there. So I hope you'll consider joining us for Krishna Das's course starting September 29th, The Path of the Heart. And now let's get into today's interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Krishna Das. Layering traditional kirtan with instantly accessible melodies and modern instrumentation, Krishna Das has been called yoga's rock star. With a remarkably soulful voice that touches the deepest chord in even the most casual listener, Krishna Das, known to friends, family, and fans as simply KD, has taken the call and response chanting out of yoga centers and into concert halls, becoming a worldwide icon and the best-selling Western chant artist of all time. His album, Live Ananda, which was released in January of 2012, was nominated for a Grammy in the Best New Age Album category. Katie spent the late 60s traveling across the country as a student of Ram Das, and in August 1970, he finally made the journey to India, which led him to Ram Das' own beloved guru, Neem Karoli Baba, known to most as Maharaji. Given the name Krishna Das, Katie began to chant as part of following the path of bhakti yoga, or the yoga of devotion. So hello, Krishna Das. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, every, every time I hear that interview, I mean, that that blurb about me, I go like, you know, just say he went to India and never came back. That's <laughs> yeah, that's what it all boils down to. Um, well, it's it's really an incredible honor to speak with you. I have been a huge fan of your work for uh, quite a long time. And I can remember actually going to see um, the first concert uh, of yours that I saw, which was in, I think, 2010 in a um, Upper West Side church in New York. I think it was a Presbyterian yeah. church. Uh, I, I call it the Church of Peter, Paul, and Mary, but I don't remember the actual name. <laughs> okay. And why do you call it the Church of Peter, Paul, and Mary? Well, you know, that was a that was an old folk group from in the 60s, you know, so I think it's it's uh, it has three names, the three saints. Uh, oh, I, I can see. never remember which they are. I so. see. Well, it's a beautiful church, and it was quite big, and it was totally packed, and it was a, a beautiful experience. So it's a it's a lovely full circle moment to get to speak with you today. Great. Um, so to begin, I just want to talk a little bit about your well, the beginning of your story, I guess, because I'd like to ask um, a lot of questions about your story, um, and a lot of this is stemming from my own um, reading of your book, which I've really been enjoying reading, which is uh, the book you published uh, way back in 2010, uh, which is called Chance of a Lifetime, Chance, C-H-A-N-T-S of a Lifetime, Searching for a Heart of Gold, which I do have to say is just a really beautiful book and really moving. In fact, it was sort of um, a heart explosion experience. At one point, I was reading it and listening to one of your albums, which uh -huh. actually was sort of heart overload. So I had to to turn off the album for a moment. <laughs> but the book is really beautiful. And, um, and you know, you're, you've had such a journey um, through life from, you know, your uh, initial beginnings with music, to obviously your incredible career in Kirtan. But I wanted to ask you uh, first, sort of what moved initially your heart in the direction of spirituality? Do you do you remember a specific moment when when you became hard attracted to um, a, a kind of journey of spiritual fulfillment? Well, 
you know, I, I can't even say that I looked at it that way. I just felt there was a hole in my being that just mm. was empty, that couldn't be filled by anything that that I knew about, you know, and that I was doing. This is, I felt like that my whole life, really, in some way. Of course, most of the time, I wasn't aware of it exactly. I wasn't focused on it. I just felt this this need for more, a deeper connection, or something more real, or something that 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 I could really give myself to fully. You know, that was part of it. Was my own inability mm. to really be and totally involved with whatever it is I was doing. My, I just couldn't. There was always my my head was working. You know, my thoughts were going, and and I was unable to really immerse myself in in anything really fully even music you know although early on when i was playing a lot of guitar and blues and stuff like that that was a very deep experience for me but it wasn't until i met ramdas really that i felt wow there really is something to find mm. there really there really is a way to, to, there is something to find in this world. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to call it, but all of a sudden I knew it was real. And up to that time, you know, I'd just been half-assedly searching for this and that, you know, not really being able to give myself fully. But after I met Ramdas, everything changed. It was like all the lights went on for a minute. And I went, oh, of course, then they went off again. But I, I had a sense of direction that I didn't have before. Hmm. So in your book, you talk about how initially, you know, you wanted to be a rock star. So would you say that that some part of you before you met Ramdas thought that that fulfillment lived at the end of that kind of um, uh, more conventional musical success? Sure, that was my dream. Yeah, but and in my dream. It was great, <laughs> but the reality was that that would have never happened because of this, the kind of issues I had psychologically and emotionally. I would have never been able to really do that fully. I would have left. I would have done something else. I would have, I once again, I wouldn't have been able to really do it. Mm -hmm. And all these years later, so look what's happened. You know, there I am singing with people and it's and and it's good for me <laughs> you know my own destructive stuff would have destroyed me if i had just gone the traditional you know worldly so-called way into music into rock and roll I, there's no way i would be alive yeah if i had done that yeah you speak about kind of a, a turning point where you had this opportunity um, in the book, you speak about this. You had this opportunity to go off and and pursue a more conventional musical career, or go and spend time with Ramdas, and and you really yeah. recognized it as a turning point that could have kind of taken you down. It seemed uh, a negative rabbit hole. For sure, you know. And I'd like to say I'd like to take be able to take credit for making that decision, but you know, it wasn't quite like that. You know how when you fall in love with somebody. Mm -hmm. Everything else in the world moves to the background. And you're only thinking about that person. You only want to be with that person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything else all of a sudden, you know, gets gray. And the only full color thing is this person you love. And that was what I, that's what I was feeling after I met Ramdas. He was a connection to that love for me. And everything else just paled. Even my own dreams of... You know, because I'd been offered a chance to be a singer in a band that finally became famous later, but I wouldn't have made it. Mm. I wouldn't have made it. Mm. Uh, what was kind of the experience for you of of first meeting Ramdas and then finally landing in the company of um, of Neem Karoli Baba, who um, who is you, you know you speak about as your guru and mm -hmm. your kind of primary teacher. Um, what was that experience like um, meeting him? And um, and can you just speak a little bit about how Ramdas helped to make that connection? 
I had heard about Ramdas from some friends, and to make a long story short, I I went up to meet him. And he was living at his father's estate in, uh, in New Hampshire, but he wasn't living in the house. He was living in a little room above the the garage. Middle of the winter, very cold, rain, uh, snow all over. I drove all night to get there because my car was slow and a crazy, crazy night, big storm. But when I when I walked into the room where he was sitting, without a word being spoken, without eye contact, the minute I walked into that room, I was struck with a, a an epiphany, I guess you could say. And I knew, I really knew that whatever it was I was looking for was real. It was in the world and you could find it. And this was huge. This was like, this was almost, this was like the beginning of the rest of my life. And so, of course, I thought it was Ramdas, hmm. him, you know. And so I, I wound up becoming very close with Ramdas, spending a lot of time with him. And the more time I spent with him, the more I realized that it was a very complex situation. It was in him in a way, but it was really just coming through him. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't his ego. It wasn't Ramdas, the person we could point to, but it was what was coming through him. And of course, there were times he would melt into that and it would be very beautiful. But there were other times when it wasn't so beautiful with him. It was just what was coming through him. And once I recognized that, then I understood that it was the, this, the, he had a couple of pictures of this, this guy in a blanket, you know, in India, a black and white pictures. And, and he talked a lot about Maharaji. And so I finally recognized that it, it was Maharaji that was coming through him. And so then I decided I had to go to India. And, um, of course, Maharaji had told Ramdas when he, he left India, he had been there once already, that he shouldn't talk about him. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that. I thought that was really interesting. Was that just because yeah. he didn't want the fame that it would bring? Or what was his... his... Uh, no, I don't think that was it either. I think really it was just that Maharaji didn't want to be bothered with, with all these bodies coming around. He didn't need that. He didn't need us to be physically with him to affect us and to work with us and to be, to envelop us in his being, in his love, in his presence. Sorry, I found that really interesting that um, this kind of push and pull that you speak about a lot in the book of the way he would, he would be like, yes, come. And then, and then it's sort of very crucial spiritual circumstances. It was like, go away. <laughs> and sometimes it was, it, you know, someone would come and they would like travel far and wide to see him. And then you've come now, you'll be okay. You can go. <laughs> yeah, so you've it, come, it, it, now you can go. <laughs> it's, and it's an interest, it's an interesting kind of attitude, right? Of, uh, compared to some spiritual teachers today where it's sort of like an accumulation of, you know, um, adoring devotees. Um, And, and this just seemed, it just struck me as much more skillful and and really in the service of the students, because um, it isn't, you know, in the need of every student to be in the company of, uh, of the guru in the way that, that, you know, you had the privilege of, of doing and, and some people, need or or do can you speak a little bit about that and and kind of the wisdom behind that well like you say it's the wisdom behind that that is what counts wisdom means knowing and maharaji was a completely free being is a completely free being he didn't need anything he merged with the universe completely he lives this is my understanding of course he lives as the indwelling presence in every being in the world, in the universe. This is real, this is ultimate realization, which is what he has, is. So he doesn't need to, you to be there physically to be, for him to do whatever he has to do with you. We might feel the need to see him, like I did, and he allowed that to happen, although... It, <laughs> 
not quite, but yeah. <laughs> you know, so what happened? So when I told Ramdas that I was going to go to India to see Maharaji, he said, well, you know, I can't tell you where he is. He told me not to speak about him, but I certainly can't tell you how to find him. And I said, all right, that doesn't matter. I'll find him. So Ramdas said, okay, 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 wait, 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 wait. So here, you write to this guy. He's my friend in this town called Nanital in the mountains, and then see what happens. So I wrote to this man named K.K. Shah. And he wrote back, and he said, wonderful to hear from you. You know, Maharaji's not here at this time, uh, but when he returns to the hills, I will bring your, I'll bring your letter to him asking to come, and then I'll write back to you. So K.K. went to the temple. Maharaji arrived sometime after that. K.K. KK grew up in Maharaji's lap, right? Mm -hmm. From the time he was eight years old. Maharaji was like his grandfather. They had the sweetest, most unbelievable, close relationship. And yet there was respect, but there wasn't formality. You know, it was, if Maharaji said, sit down, KK would stand up. If Maharaji said, go away, KK would stay. If Maharaji said, go stay, KK would go. The, the, he was just a spoiled brat. That was his relationship with Maharaji. So he comes into the temple, goes into the room where Maharaji is sitting with some other Indian devotees. And he takes my letter and two other letters that were written and puts them on the bed next to Maharaji. And he begins to peel an apple and cut it into small pieces to feed Maharaji. That's one of the things people like to do because he only had like three teeth. So he would just take these soft apples and chew them. Hmm. So KK's cutting the apple and Maharaji's talking to the other people and Maharaji notices the letters and he says, what's that? And KK says, they're letters from students of Ramdas. They want to come see you. Nay. Tell him not to come. What do I have to do with this? And he goes back to his conversation with the other people. Now, like I told you about KK. So KK began to pout. He was very offended because Maharaj himself had asked KK to help Ramdas be and serve Ramdas, do seva with Ramdas. And by helping us, he felt he was helping Ramdas, serving Ramdas. And now Maharaji was interfering with the very service that he gave KK to do. And KK was not going to stand for that. So he began to pout. He looked down. He stopped feeding Maharaji the apple. And Maharaji looks at him and says, what's wrong? What's wrong, KK? And he tried to pick his head up. And Mah KK wouldn't look at him. He turned his eyes away. And then when Maharaji let go of his head, he would put his head back down again. And finally, after three times like that, Maharaji threw his hands up and said, okay, tell him what you want. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. My whole life dangling on a little thread over an abyss. Tell him what you want. Now, KK being a good devotee is not going to lie. So what did he write? He said, saints like Maharaji do not encourage the devotees to come to them, but their doors are always open. So if you're here traveling in India, you can come see him. Very, 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 very amazing. Yeah. But of course, my interpretation of all this is that Maharaji's really pulling all the strings in the background be behind where we can see how things are working. And he arranged, the whole thing was just arranged that it would be KK that got the letter and KK had that kind of relationship. If it was another devotee, I would have gotten a letter back saying, Maharaji says not to come, goodbye. And that would have been it. But it wasn't that. So you could say it had to happen. And, uh, and it did. <laughs> it did. It so, did. so, that's such a beautiful story and it's it's amazing these kind of key moments and 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 the players that opened this incredible gateway that's that's transformed your life when did uh kirtan or when did um the singing of names come into the picture when did that become a part of this whole journey for you first of all in india 
They don't meditate. Most people don't. People are busy working, trying to make enough money to to eat or support their families, etc. They're very busy. They don't have time to meditate, but they do pray and sing and do a little what they call puja, which is like a little ritual worship, a light and some incense and, you know, say some prayers and, you know, that kind of stuff. And they sing, they sing. And um, what they sing in a, uh, as spiritual practice, are these what they call the names of God, these names, divine names, these sacred names, these names which ultimately our our own true name, the name of our inner being, our true self. So everywhere we went when we got to India, we, we were surrounded by this culture that is just especially, you know, that was, what, 50 years ago. Very different now hmm. since the internet and telephones and, you know, mobile phones and all that. They had nothing in those days. So the ancient cultures, the traditional culture was much more alive at that point. So then one day I was walking, soon after we got up to the mountains, I was walking around this incredible crater lake uh, in this town called Nainital. And at one end of the lake, there's a very ancient temple. And as I was walking past the temple, I heard this chanting coming from inside. And I, I, I was paralyzed. I, I couldn't move. I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't move. I was just, what is that? It was like, whoa, there was so much intensity and energy and beauty and shakti and it was just like wow and as i was standing there some indian guy was coming walked past me on the way to go into the temple and he just grabbed my arm and he pulled me in with him he said oh come 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 and i came and i sat around with these guys in this temple and that was it i knew that this was something i could do this was something I could really give myself to. It was like a whole another ball game. This really spoke to me in a way that was not unlike the blues. Mm. But the blues is very, it has limitations emotionally. There's, this had no limitations. This was wide open, like the sky. It was... It was freedom. It was like, wow. So after that, anywhere I heard chanting was good, I went there and just hung out, you know. I, I wasn't collecting chants to come back and become famous because mm -hmm. I was never coming back to America. Yeah. I gave everything away. I sold my car, my, gave my jeans away, my guitar, everything. There was no, I was coming to India for the duration. I was not coming back to, in, to America. So I just, I just was so drawn to it. It just, even today, I mean, it's, that hasn't changed. The minute I hear chanting, if it's coming from the right place, it just, it just goes right into my, my being and lights me up. Yeah. Well, anybody who's um, been with you live or listened to any of your albums, that's, that's palpable. So for those, I mean, I'm sure many people who are listening are familiar with Kirtan to some degree or another, but would you give just kind of a brief overview of what um, the the chanting of the of the divine names is 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 doing? Like, what it what is the potency of um, of this practice, and what does it offer the one who practices it? It's really very simple. Once again. Remember the first moment that you fell in love with someone? You're, you're connected to that person inside you, even if they're not there. You're thinking about them. You're feeling the juice. You know, you're feeling that energy, that love, that feeling of connection that, you know. Now, they say that within us, there's a love that is <clears throat> huge that is so much 
bigger than any love that we felt before. In fact, they say it's it's actually who we are when we finished when we when we're not bound and limited by our thoughts and emotions. Those are like clouds. When you get through the clouds, you get into this wide open sky of love. So these the, these chants, these names that we sing, and what I sing comes from India, but it's in all traditions and all over the world. These are the names of that place inside of us. That's, that's beyond anything we could imagine. And yet, it's in everyone. It's in us completely. And so, the repetition of these names is a spiritual practice because we're invoking that place in us that's deeper than our thoughts and emotions. And you can't think yourself out of a prison that's actually made of thoughts. That The thought itself is the prison. So we add one of these names or one of these mantras, because they are mantras, to our life, to our daily life, and we add it. And that gives us something to come back to. And so we, we repeat these names, these mantras, and then we see we're thinking about other things. So we drop it and we come back. If we didn't add the practice, we'd, we wouldn't realize that we were gone. And actually, if you think about it, we're mostly gone 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We are not present. We are lost in our thoughts, our emotions, our reactions, living in dreamland all the time. And we're not even thinking about waking up. And even if we're thinking about waking up, we're not actually doing anything to help ourselves wake up. So we add this practice of the repetition of these names, and it's it automatically lets us know that we're not here when we recognize that we just think we're lost in this or that. It's like if you watch a movie. We get totally lost in the movie. We, we've, we forget ourselves, you know, and we're lost in the movie. So our lives are like movies, and we're lost in it. So we have to, it's like we have to add something that will bring us back from dreamland. Yeah. And in India, they call that, they call that God, you know. It's not like some guy up in the sky th throwing thunderbolts at you for being a bad little boy or girl. <laughs> they call that place inside of us God. And these are the names of that place inside of us. Mm. That's actually something I wanted to ask you about because I, I appreciated what you mentioned in your book about how you tightened up a, a, at the word God um, for a long time and something about the multitude of names felt softer and sweeter. And I just, I found that really interesting because I've, I've experienced something similar. So can you talk about, about that and how the word God, you know, was problematic for you and how something about having the almost, it's almost like the multitude of options made um, the divine uh, a sweeter and more accessible experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It wasn't only the multitude of options. It was, the sweetness of the way you can relate to that. Right. I mean, there wasn't a lot of sweetness. There isn't a lot of sweetness in most organized religion. It's all either very emotional intensity, but it's based on like good and evil, or it's, or it's very, very cold and clear and, and with no heart at all, no feeling, no emotion, no, no compassion or kindness. It's like in the West, we only have one version of God, mm -hmm. and it's not a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely true. When I got to India, I saw, wow, it's fun. 
You know, it, it should feel good because once again, inside of us, everything's okay underneath our thoughts and emotions and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves all lifelong. We're, we're stuck in, but underneath that or inside that, everything's okay, but we're, we're not in touch with that. And, and these names are the names of that place. And the meaning of these names is only partially from the stories of these beings uh, in Indian uh, philosophy, so to speak. The real meaning of the names is that place inside of us. So it's not a blind faith kind of thing. It's really, you just do a little practice. If it feels right, you do some more, you know? And when we chant together, we help each other to kind of put, push the clutch in on all that thinking and, and emotional stuff that we, we torture ourselves with. Yeah. Yeah, you speak about this in the book, about it being um, your kind of reflection on this, about it really being about love and, and not um, a kind of organized religion. And I know there's a lot of, you know, people who have sometimes, you know, I've encountered this even initially when I first um, was exposed to Kirtan and, and other people who might initially feel uncomfortable chanting names that that don't appear to belong to what they think to be their spiritual, religious or cultural tradition. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach these names, like how, how you would kind of respond to someone who has that perhaps... Um, initial discomfort and, 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 um, and the way you approach these names, that's not, how do I want to ask this? Um, that doesn't necessarily, um, convert them, so to speak into in a particular way. Sure. I'll tell you, if you don't like it, don't do it. <laughs> that's a very pragmatic answer, KD. Well, what, what else should I say? Yeah, it because it's good for you. Fuck that. Yeah. That's what my mother used to say to me. No totally. way. You know, yeah. don't do it if it doesn't feel right. But yeah. really look at the feelings that you're having. Are you, are you, are you, what, what is all that stuff? What are you feeling? And why are you feeling that? Is it, are you threatening? Are you being threaded, uh, threatened by that? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, there's no conversion of anyone. You know, that was the thing about Maharaji. You've come, now go. He didn't, he didn't convert anybody. He didn't, he didn't even convert the Westerners. He didn't want us to be Hindus. We were never initiated into any religion, you yeah. know. Uh, but, we've, but we were let into the room where love lives. Mm. And we did not want to leave that room. But... But we couldn't help but but pull ourselves out of it. And then he would let us in again but with a laugh or he hit you in the heart with a banana, you know, or giggle or look at you and like, you know. The, the, the daily uh, play, playfulness of being with him would just keep bringing us into that room. Our heads would take us out. It would bring us back again and again. That's how he taught. And there was no compulsion. You want to stay, stay. You want to go, go, mostly, you know. Yeah, I guess the one of the reasons behind answering or asking that question is that it seems like we've, um, you know, moved into this era where we're really focused in an effort, you know, the intention is to respect these traditions, but we're really focused on kind of like, is this Vaishnava? Is this Shaiva? Is this, you know, this, is this, that, and kind of categorizing people and making sure we know which sort of sect of, of really religiosity they came from. And, you know, was, you know, this particular guru or teacher, a representative of this tradition or that. And it seems like, um, and kind of what I hear you suggesting, you know, in your book and, and, just in the work that you do in Kirtan is, is that there's a little bit in that obsession that loses sight of the wisdom behind 
these expressions. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Have, I mean, have you observed that to be something as well that's sort of uh, occurring or perhaps it's always been occurring? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in some sense, it's always been occurring. Even in India, there were there were wars between different religious sects. And then, of course, you know, the, the history of civilization is fighting, you know. Yeah. And people will find anything they can to fight about. Right. So, yeah, I, I'm so unconcerned with all that stuff. You know, I don't even know what to say to you. Yeah. I don't know even what to call myself, you know. I mean, am I this? Am I that? I'm just trying to be a human being, the best human being I can be, a good human being. I'm trying to develop kindness and compassion, not only for myself, but also for everyone that I meet, you know, and it's not easy. But people seem to need, in these days, when your consciousness is spread out through the universe, through the internet all the time, and you're getting feedback of all kinds from millions of people all around all the time. People seem to have comp- want to compress themselves into a particular defin- definite role that can be easily defined, even if it's multifaceted, so to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's really a kind of fear, and that's the ego trying to uh, stake out its 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 uh, territory and protect itself. So if a person needs to do that, there's no, that's fine. Everybody has to do what they have to do. You can't, uh, you can't, love means letting people be who they are. It doesn't mean making them feel any particular way or, or making them fit into any particular program or plan or group. Love means re- letting a person be who they are and not turning off to them because you don't like what you see. That's right. your own problem, you know, judging people and evaluating yeah. people and, and and propping up your own ego. So it, spirituality is a personal thing. It's between you and your own true self. And you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to meet any gurus. You don't have to know anything or have blind faith in anything. You just have to look at your mind and your emotions. And you'll see what's fucking you up. It's not a mystery. Mm -hmm. And then you'll look for a way to deal with that. You know, that's the key. Most people, unfortunately, don't recognize that there is a way to free ourselves from all that negativity and all that fear and all that anxiety. Most people don't understand that. And so they don't find a way to work with their stuff and, and they suffer terribly right? In, internally. But some people, for whatever reason, recognize like, well, maybe I can deal with this. Maybe, maybe that's what meditation is about. Maybe that's what this chanting thing is about. I don't know. But let's see. So you reach a point where you have to kind of suspend your disbelief, temporarily at least, to jump into the water and see how it feels. If you don't like it, you come out and then you do something else. A lot of people come like to the chanting with me, you know, like a lot of people drag their partners there, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and they like, oh, shit, you know, can I stay home and watch football? You know, I really have to go to this. But, yeah, they t- they can feel something. They might feel something. And they they might like that feeling. And if you like that feeling, you'll look for it again. And gradually you'll be led to finding a way to, in finding finding that feeling within yourself. One of the things that I found really moving um, that you talk about quite a bit in the book is is being a depressed person, having depression, and and it it brought and and I feel that it also expressed kind of in your relationship with blues and um, and I found it really moving because it because then you also go on to talk about how um, chanting is not necessarily about 
mood making or feeling a certain way. And it's, you know, I feel like there is a lot of this presupposition or, you know, assumption by a lot of people that chanting is about achieving ecstatic states. And you say, no, it's not about that. And so it, it just was, it, I just was really curious um, because I didn't really see you say it directly in the book, but do you feel like, I guess, what is the relationship between your chanting and that, um, that depressive quality that you've experienced throughout your life? Do you feel like it's healed that? Is it something that is, um, I, I just, I appreciated the way you spoke about it as sort of like a quality of your experience and not an affliction. Um, and, and I think that's also expressed in sort of blues as a concept, right? Um, that it doesn't need to be something that's pathologized, like a melancholic constitution can be something that can be functional <laughs> with the yeah. right tools, you know? Yeah. Well, I wonder what country that has that constitution. <laughs> <laughs> the constitution of the United States of melancholy. Um, so... Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. You know, the the idea that chanting practice is very simple. You sing, and when you notice that you're not paying attention, you haven't been even listening to yourself or hearing the thousand people next to you, you come back to the chanting. You sing, and when you notice you're not paying attention, you simply come back, right? You can have all kinds of experiences and you, there might be very happy, blissful, ecstatic moments. And there might be, you might get stuck in a lot of negative thinking for a while. But what we're developing is the ability to let go because anything you can let go of is not permanent, is not eternal, is not something that will always be with you. And the, the understanding is that your own true nature, your own soul, your own being is perfectly all right, is in fact sat, truth, chit, consciousness, ananda, bliss. That's your own true nature. So it's not that you don't have ecstatic feelings or, or stuff like that or good times while you're chanting. It's just that you don't become identified with it. You try to stay present. You just try to stay with the sound of the chant that's going on. In you're hearing it in your ears. You're, you're, it's in your breath when you're singing it. And that ability to release those thoughts and emotions, sometimes negative, many times negative, what happens over time is we spend less and less time thinking about ourselves as one thing or another, and more time just being ourselves. And it's not something that's easy to notice because what's happening is the judger, the evaluator is being thinned out. And, and I, I often joke that, you know, my whole life I've been a moper. I've been <laughs> moping around my whole life. It's my basic identity, right? <laughs> But I have to confess that I actually mope around less than I used to. <laughs> but I don't necessarily notice it, you see. I just, not moping is there. And, and that means I'm just engaged in a different way in, in, the, in daily life where I'm not those heavy negative thoughts are not owning me anymore. So there's a, like a gradual change of where your center of gravity is. It gets deeper in you. And the thoughts just move through more quickly without dragging you for lifetimes. You know, they, they go through like, like a bird or a cloud through the sky and they don't own you. Uh, it's not that you reject anything. Letting go is not rejection. Letting go just means releasing and allowing it to be and allowing yourself to be there. It's, it's, it's not an act of 
willful power. It's an act of willful releasing. Very different. And as that starts to function more and more in your life, because it goes on through the day, the little bit of practice you do in the morning or in the evening or whenever, that reverberates through your day and stuff just doesn't stick to you the way it used to. And it doesn't, you don't have the same intense quality of reacting against things as time goes on. And you're you, you much more at ease in yourself as you are as time goes on. I really appreciated this phrase that you used in the book. The medicine of the name is hidden in the sweet syrup of the music. Mm. I just thought that yeah. was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not the syrup that that cures you. It's the medicine. So the but the but the, the sweet syrup makes it possible to take the take the, the medicine better, you know, more often and especially if, if we're all kids. So kids don't like to take things that don't taste good. Yeah, that's true. So I, I wanted to kind of close by asking you a question about, um, about what you think about the, the, the role of a teacher <clears throat> in the life of a contemporary seeker. You know, there's been obviously a bit of a shift, um, in the last, I don't know, a couple of decades, uh, um, where, you know, a lot of kind of, um, a problematic relationships have come to light and it's made people more resistant to seeking out a teacher or thinking that they can kind of own it themselves. And I, you know, since you had a more kind of traditional relationship with a, a teacher, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your, what your thoughts are on, on, on the need for that for a seeker and, and can they, um, establish, um, a strong refuge in, in their own sadhana or practice, e even without, you know, finding the kind of, um, uh, incredible teacher that, that you found, um, because it seems like they're harder to find <laughs> and more often than yeah. not, there are charlatans rather than the real thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, on really seeking out and, and finding and, and, and the need for a kind of authentic teacher? Hmm. That's a really good question, you know. First of all, there are gurus and there are teachers. Mm. A real guru doesn't need anything, want anything. They they don't collect. They don't they don't need people around them. They don't need devotees telling them how great they are and worship them. They don't need anything. They're free of all those things. So real gurus are not that common and many many beings who claim to be gurus might might have something to share that's useful but they also might not have they might not be completely free but the point of all this and the point of the whole spiritual path really and as far as i see it really is to trust yourself the problem is we don't trust ourselves and we're always looking for someone to tell us something nice about ourselves mm. and make us feel better. We do anything to feel better and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is we give ourselves away in order to feel, to connect with someone or something that makes us feel better, whether it's a, a teacher uh, a, a um, some kind of entertainment, a drug. It, it doesn't matter if we if we're willing to give everything to feel better and to feel less pain and less suffering. So that being said, we really we we need to trust our own intuition, which is very hard for us. Nobody's trained us to do that. Nobody said it's okay. And growing up, we're told my way, or you're, you're out of here. You know, mm -hmm. this is the way the world is. This is the way we do it in this house. This is the way we do it in this school. This is the way we do it in this job, etc, etc, etc. So 
in order to find freedom, we have to learn to trust ourselves because the freedom is inside of us. So, spiritual practice, you have to do some practice. If you don't do practice, you'll never get past your, your thoughts and emotions because they're, that's basically where we live all the time. We'll never be able to unravel the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves without some kind of practice. And practice can be done and be learned from many different teachers. You don't need to find an enlightened guru or to be in contact with an enlightened guru physically to learn how to do a practice and help yourself. Absolutely not. But one has to trust oneself about what practice should I do? What feels good? So you try everything. I went around to every yogi who ever came to America way back in the old days. There weren't many, but I was looking. I was searching and I kept searching. And then I, I hit the jackpot. I found something that worked for me. And that's what you have to do. You have to find something that works for you. And it doesn't mean waiting for some divine being to manifest, you know, three feet off the floor uh, in your bedroom at night, you know, with lights coming out of everywhere. That doesn't happen, mostly. You have to learn to trust yourself and recognize that I have my issues, I have my problems, I need to find a way to free myself of that. Meditation, chanting, all kinds of physical yoga, pranayama, all these practices can help. You have to get your feet wet. Mm -hmm. And one thing leads to another. Um, and if you get involved with uh, some situation that uh, begins to feel wrong, that's okay. Get your ass out of there right away. Trust yourself. That's the whole thing. I've been in situations, even after meeting Maharaji, where I got involved with a quote-unquote teacher, that it turned out, as time went on, it began to feel really bad, and I, I split, I left. But for quite a while, I was very immersed in something that was not really healthy. Hmm. And should I have known better? Yeah. Did I? No. <laughs> what to do? But ultimately... I got freed from that. I think we're more afraid of ourselves than anything else. So that's why it's really important to, to have some confidence in oneself. And that's, that's, that's where all the work happens. That's where the practice happens, that your life happens right there in yourself. So there's no need to wait for someone to come to you and there's also, I don't think there's any reason to be afraid of exposing yourself to different teachers and practices to see what works. Mm -hmm. But, you know, pay attention. If it looks stupid, it probably is stupid. If it looks <laughs> fucked up, if it looks fucked up, it probably is fucked up. Get out of there, you know? Don't keep, don't give yourself up. See, that, that's what every cult is about. You give up your own sense of right and wrong and exactly. what's good for somebody else's view. Maharaji never, not even in a dream, ever, ever, even hinted at anything like that. There was nothing to fight against. There was nothing to, all you want, you couldn't get close enough. He ran away. And it wasn't just a, a, uh, a joke or a play. This was really, so, Trust yourself, be present, and, and go for it, regardless of what anybody else thinks. If it's right for you, it, it's right for you until it's not right. Hmm. But trust, you have to, we have to trust ourselves. Who else are you going to trust? And if you trust <laughs> what somebody else says, then what are you trusting? You're trusting your feeling about that, right? Mm -hmm. It's in you. It's always in us. Mm -hmm. But because we don't trust ourselves, we betray ourselves constantly. And the pain of knowing 
even unconsciously, that we're betraying ourselves is very hard to deal with. It's very, very hurtful to ourselves, in ourselves. It's very, very, very hard to deal with. But we all do that every day, really. But the good news, the good news is that everything we need is already within us. In fact, it's who we really are underneath all the bullshit. So one needs to keep that in mind when one goes out to meet teachers or, or learn techniques and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I think all of that is really just encouraging and very pragmatic and useful information. And, and, um, and I, I love what you also wrote about in the book and just spoke about, which is this, um, this idea of our culture kind of destroying our trust in our own intuition. And whenever I, um, that strikes me as, you know, as quite true, but whenever I, whenever I kind of think about it, I, I, I get stuck on this, um, on this distinction between what my intuition is versus kind of what my egoic trappings are, <laughs> what my, what the sort of, you know, negative thoughts and emotions are versus my intuition. And I, I think what I hear you partly saying is that, you know, practice is a part of what clears that out of the way so that you can be in touch with that, um, intuition is, is there, you know, do you have any other thoughts on kind of, you know, the distinction between those two things kind of maybe the voice you don't want to listen to inside versus the yeah. voice you do? Yeah. My, don't worry about it. <laughs> That's my advice. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Don't obsess about it. Get your ass out there and do some practice. And then once you do practice, those thoughts are just what you let go of, you see? There's no reason to believe them other than the fact that we believe everything we think. But when you're repeating Ram, 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 and you're thinking, oh, this is totally fucked up. This is bullshit. You know, I'm not, I can't do this. You go, oh, that's a thought. Let go, ram, ram, ram. And that's what loosens the grip of those really deep-seated beliefs about ourselves that we have. You can't talk yourself out of that. You have to train to let go of that. That's why I said, don't worry about it. Do some practice. And as time goes on, you won't believe that shit anymore. It'll just go through like a bird through the sky and it won't grab you. That's the good news. Just do some practice, whatever it is. It's the practice and the confidence that that practice will give you yourself that leads you on the path. Wow. Well, that's a really beautiful note to end on. And um, I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity to chat with you, KD. It's been such an honor and a pleasure. And I wanted to maybe end with just giving you an opportunity to share anything you'd like about um, what's coming up for you. I'm, I'm going to speak briefly about the course that you're going to be um, hosting with us. But besides that, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Any kind of forthcoming projects that you'd like to talk about? Mm -hmm. You know... It, the, these times are so uncertain. I don't know what's going to be going. I don't know if I'll be touring again or not. Uh, right now, there's really no big projects on uh, online, but I mean, on the way to do. But <clears throat> certainly, you can always go to krishnadas.com and you can check out what what's what what might be happening or not happening. So um, that's really it. And now, you know, I'm going to go and read my book again because you kept quoting from it. And I thought, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, it is really wonderful. I mean, you know, um, to the listeners, you know, KD was speaking about um, of the book before we started the episode and, and remarking that it wasn't quite as popular as his albums. But I do have to say, you know, was well, first of all, someone who loves books, but, but, but also, you know, you 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 know someone who's known for something else. You don't necessarily think that they are um, they're going to necessarily be a great writer. But this is really a quite beautiful and moving book. Um, Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And I was also saying to KD before the interview that I 
I listened to it, or maybe I said this at the beginning of the interview, I'm not quite sure now, but I listened to it um, and read it at, at the same time, which was a very heart expanding experience for me. So you can do a bit of both if you'd like, um, those of you listening at home. Um, so thank you so much, Katie. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. And, and uh, for those of you who are listening and who are uh, listening to this before the end of September, or even after that, um, 2021, uh, Krishna Das is going to be hosting a course with us. Um, although it's really more of an experiential um, uh, experience <laughs> uh, than than a than a formal course, um, but you'll be get, getting an opportunity to uh, uh, learn a bit about chanting with Krishna Das as well as chant with him, and that's uh, going to be beginning, um, I believe, as of the publication of this episode. Um, a week, a week from now. So those of you yeah. who are listening, um, you'll be able to join us, um, uh, by heading to the embodiedphilosophy.com website and, and registering for the course. All right, Krishna Das, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Take good care. Thank you so much. You too.